Good morning, church. If you would, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Uh, we'll be going through verses 13 through 18 today. Um, and, and the title of my sermon I, is, is Church Building. And it's, it's not based on like a building of a church, but I was, uh, as I began to consider going to New York, as I was, I was beginning to consider why I would leave such a faithful church, why I would leave a family that I've built here for the past three years to go to a place uh, that is, uh, one, extremely expensive, that uh, probably will reject the gospel a majority of the time, that uh, uh, I don't know many people, my wife doesn't know too many people, and so I began to really question, why would I leave? What is my hope in going to a place where the gospel is not thriving? Why would I go I really want to know, I want to have a biblical hope for a church plant. I want to have this hope. And so I began searching the scriptures. I began listening to sermons, reading commentaries, trying to figure out why I would go. Is this a biblical thing that I'm even doing? And then I also wanted to have a biblical understanding of the role of the church in the expansion of the kingdom of God and in building of the church. And I began... Looking through some statistics, which if you ever want to really depress yourself, is just to look at statistics, because almost always they're either overwhelmingly encouraging, and and you think, this can't be right, or they're overwhelmingly uh, discouraging. But I did it anyways, and so this is is what I found. Uh, the, The Southern Baptist Convention gained 500 churches in 2016 to 2017, but then I also saw that the Southern Baptist Convention... Uh, closed 900 churches, which deeply grieved me because that means there's 900 less places of where people can go to hear the gospel. And then I began to think about, what about just the evangelical church in America? Is this this a theme? Uh, 4,000 evangelical close per year, and 80% have remained the same for decades. And this really bothered me, because that means that there are many, many people who are either leaving the faith or who are not hearing the gospel now. And I'm I'm a church guy, so I believe that the gospel goes forth through the local church. But I wanted to have a firm foundation that it is that church planting is a biblical thing, and that I'm not I'm not making this up, and I have a hope. For when I go, for, for leaving a family to go into a place where there are little to no Christians. And so I began to ask the question, why is this the case today? This statistic overwhelmed me. It said 47%, and I don't know exactly if this is true, if it's even close, it's a scary statistic. 47% of Americans said that they would go to church if they were invited by a friend of Americans' unchurched population, would be willing to go if they were invited by a friend, but yet we are decreasing substantially. So I was, asked my question, I was asking the question in my head, what is going wrong? What is happening And that last statistic is one of the reasons we're not inviting our friends. But even more than that is that the churches themselves are not as appealing. And we hear all these stories about churches splitting 
over silly issues. I was reading, again, an article, and, and one church split because they couldn't decide what is a good length for a pastor's beard. Another church split because they couldn't decide to build a playground or a cemetery. Another church split because one of the church members hid the vacuum cleaner from them, and it got into a major fight, and they split over a vacuum cleaner. Now this is, I was laughing when I read it, but it is extremely sad that the people of God would split so quickly from tertiary issues. They would split so quickly from non-gospel issues. I was thinking if, if this was what I thought a church was, then I wouldn't want to go either. But I'm so thankful for the Word of God to correct us, to bring us back. And as we've been going through Philippians, I've been just encouraged at the unity emphasis in Philippians. And because this is just such a reality in today's world, in our, in our culture. And then lastly, I, I was thinking that American churches typically tend to pursue things. They, they have a good intentions. They pursue godly things in a what is called a pragmatic way. And pragmatism is this. If you don't know what it is, I didn't know what it was either, but it's this. It's the notion that meaning or worth is determined by practical consequences. In other words, if it works, then let's do it. Then it's okay. It's based on the desired outcome. If I get the outcome that I want, then it must be good. But there's also this stream among the same people who now claim sola scriptura, right? This is a great an absolutely wonderful thing. And I think every church should be based on this. It's solely scripture. But to use a little example here, it's kind of like, this, this is kind of what happens in American churches. In, in the, my friend Ed Moore used this example. He said, um, I believe that if I eat healthy, I am going to live a longer life. I believe that. But practically, when I am hungry and I'm driving down the highway and I see those golden arches, right, my stomach is hungry and I think I can get, you know, McDouble, McChicken, fries for $4. It'd be really easy, really fast, and so I do it. But we know that that is not actually what that person believes. They're doing something opposite of what they believe. We believe Holy Scriptura, and the American church believes uh, evangelical in, in large believes Sola Scriptura, but oftentimes we do things that is just contrary to the Bible. That's why we have books like Five Steps to Grow Your Church, Five Easy Ways to Build Your Church. And it's something that I've just been thinking about is, is that biblically the gospel does not always produce a positive response. 1 Corinthians 1, he says this, Gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews, and it is foolishness to the Gentiles. We can't base how many people we have on, 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 the, church of, on, the, on the building of the church, or even if we are preaching the gospel and people leave. Sometimes people leave because the gospel is deeply offensive. Why do churches put on a big show? Because it brings people in the door. Why have churches reverted to diluting the gospel? To not talking about ju judgment. Well, 
Sinners like knowing that they can still have their sin and heaven simultaneously. When we church plant, they die because of this. They die because we try to be culturally relevant. We try to get guys with skinny jeans, with slick hair, who are really good at drinking good coffee, and they have a seminary degree, and we say, you go out and you preach the gospel, or you do what you got to do to bring people in the door. In other words, let's let the professionals take care of it. But my hope and my goal today is that you will have a hope as a church, as I have a hope going to a church plant And that you will have a joy in your role as a church in the building of the kingdom, in the spreading of the gospel. Right? This is this is our mission together as a church, is is we are called to to go and and make disciples and preach the gospel and to send and to continuously be giving the world hope. We are the light of the world. So if you would. Pray with me, and then we'll get into our text. Oh God, please be with us today, Lord. I pray that uh, through this message, Lord, that you would be glorified, that you would be exalted, Lord, that you would be worshipped among uh, Fisherville Baptist Church, Lord. I pray that uh, as we leave, we would leave not, not thinking that, oh man, that preacher's great. Or, or I, I pray that we would not leave saying that, that preacher stinks. I just pray that we would leave thinking that Jesus is great. Jesus is amazing. I love Jesus. I love the hope that he has given me. I love the fact that he loved me so much that he died on the cross for my sins, for my ugliness, that I might be forgiven. I thank you so much that he will build our church. I thank you so much that he has built a church, and will continue until you draw us back home. God, I pray that we would believe that. God, give us faith. God, give us a love for your son today. Oh, Lord, be with us. Open up your word to us. Let us see and let us worship. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to go through Matthew 16. I have two points today. The first point is a biblical hope for the church, and particularly the reason why I did this is because I'm going to a church plant and I wanted to have this hope. And number two, a biblical understanding of the role of the church in building the church. Biblical understanding of the role of the church in building the church. So number one, a biblical hope for the church. We're going to read Matthew 16 verses 13 through 18. So follow along with me. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So I'm going to point out a few things. My main uh, focus is going to be on verse 18. He says, 
you are, I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. But to get a little context here, where we go in verse 13, Jesus is absolutely not concerned, right, necessarily with the, with the spectators. He says, when they came, he says, who did people say that the Son of Man is, right? He's, he's asking them, what have you heard around town? They say, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. We see that these answers, right, obviously are not true. They're not completely true. Jesus is a prophet, but uh, he's not just a prophet. And so one thing that I tend to think about as I, as I read something like this is that Jesus is not glorified or magnified in any way by people's ignorance of who he really is. Right? He does not commend them for this. Because it's simply not true. He is not John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. He's not a good teacher, as some people like to say. Jesus is God, and he's going to proclaim this. But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is Peter's confession. This is the great confession, the first time in this in in which he has been proclaimed uh, by another that he is God. Right? The Christ. This means simply nothing else but the anointed one. He is the anointed one. Christ is not his last name. It is a name given to him because he is the one anointed to fill the Father's task. The one who the Jews should be expecting to fulfill all the covenant promises. He is the King. He is the Messiah. He is the one anointed by God the Father to do His will. Peter is saying a few things. Peter is saying that Jesus is singularly the Christ. He is not a Christ. There's not multiple Christs that walk in. Peter's saying, you are the Christ. Peter's saying that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah for the first time in history has actually come into the world. And he recognizes it. He has seen it. And then he calls him the son of the living God. Again, acknowledging that God has one singular son. And acknowledging that God is not dead, but that God is very much alive. And he has actively sent his son into the world. Into a broken and sinful world. And this is the greatest realization that God cares for his people. God cares for his church. He cares for his people so much that he came and he sent the son of the living God to promise to institute the church. Is on that bedrock that has given me much hope that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that as long as we are here, and as long as he is alive, which is forever, the church has an unshakable foundation. Because he is the Son of the living God. He's alive. And he's working. He's actively caring for his people. I will build my church. Now Jesus responds in verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, 
For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Revealed what? That I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is denying a simple fact here. That flesh and blood does not reveal the reality of who Jesus is. Does not reveal and cannot make you know who Jesus really is. Flesh and blood has no capability of doing that. Now that does not mean that people can't intellectually understand who Jesus is. I know very smart people who can understand that Jesus is the Christ. But the reality is the God of this world has blinded them to see and to believe. That's, that's, our, that's our entire struggle as believers, is that there is a very present, real enemy trying to push us away from the living Christ. Flesh and blood has no power in revealing the Son of God. What is flesh and blood? What, is it, what does this statement mean? In Galatians 1, he uses this exact same term. And Paul, speaking of his own conversion, he says this, When he who had set me apart before I was born and had called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And he says, I did not confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem. God reveals the son to Paul, right, the, the blinding light. But he says, I do not confer with flesh and blood. That is man. I do not confer with man, with natural man. Ephesians 6, we are not contending with flesh and blood but with powers. But against the powers, not against powers of this age, but spiritual powers. Again, speaking of the natural person. We are not fighting a battle of, of natural that we can see. It's a spiritual battle. And he's talking about here, naturally, you cannot see Jesus Christ. You cannot see him as the Son of the living God. You cannot believe in him and trust in him by flesh and blood. Mere, ordinary, finite, limited, natural humanity cannot reveal the true goodness to our hearts to believe. Right? First Corinthians chapter 2 says this, The natural man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They are foolish, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You might ask, why not? Why can't I make somebody believe? Or why is it so hard for somebody else to believe? Why not? Why does it, This makes no sense to me. I refer back to John chapter 3. He says, Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. He comes back to us loving sin, loving evil more than goodness. Right? This is not a matter of mere intellectual. It is a matter of our affections. We love darkness. That's the reason we can't see Jesus. But then early in that chapter, it says, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Because that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. We must have a new nature. And Jesus comes and he says, I will build my church, which means that he will make people born again. He will make people new. He will clear away their sin. He will, he will take away the blindness of our eyes. We're all born physically, but he says in Ephesians 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but the Father's deep love for us is that he sends the Christ. 
the Son of the living God, the anointed one to fulfill this task, which is to forgive his people for their sins. This is the greatest reality that the church needs to know. This is the bedrock of which he will build the church that we are going to be born again and in such a way that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from his, his deep love for us. The Father's deep love for us is that like, he so loved the world, he gave his Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. And that is given by the Father. The, the deep, deep Father, uh, the deep, deep love of the Father is that he would show and reveal himself to us. This is a quote by John Piper talking about Jesus' father revealing this to Peter. He says, The absolute indispensable work of God in revealing the Son, both then to John and Peter and now to me and to you, is not the adding to what we see and hear in Jesus himself, but the opening of the eyes of our hearts to taste the true divine glory of what is really there in Jesus. It's the tasting of Jesus that awakens us. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Why? Because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, which means that the Father has blessed you. The Father has given you a great blessing. Blessed are you, Barjona, because you understand, and this is something that is not given naturally. Blessed are you because you have received the gift of grace. You have received and have found out the true Christ, you found him by the grace of the Father who is in heaven. Now into verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So your question, what is the rock here that Jesus is referring to? He says, I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock, well, what is the rock? Is it Peter, or is it to his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? It could be either. I'm not sure exactly which one's correct, but I don't think it necessarily matters, given the context and the rest of Scripture. So let's just, let's just say it's, it's both of them, and we'll go through each one, and, and, and uh, you can see can make a decision for yourself. I still think it's a mixture of both. I think neither is wrong. Um, the rock is Peter, right? When he says, the rock is Peter, you are Peter, Petros in Greek. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. So the play on words makes us think, you know, it, it could be Peter. But let's just take a walk through and see why it could be Peter. It makes sense, right, from Acts chapter 2, when Peter is the one who preaches the sermon at Pentecost, and 3,000 people get saved. And that is the inauguration to the church. So in that sense, Peter could be a rock. He was the first one to preach the gospel, and the first one to, uh, to preach the gospel that inaugurated the church. So I guess in that sense, he could be a rock. Peter also is the first one to take the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts 10 which is a monumental part of the church. Jews and Gentiles can be saved. So in that sense, he could be a rock for the church. 
But was Jesus giving Peter a new office that will be passed down for generations? And I would say no. According to Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, The church, we are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And I think so based on that because we don't need, to say, we don't need multiple foundations of a house. If you need to keep adding this foundation over and over again, the house becomes unsteady. So in that sense, I don't think so. But I do think that Peter is a rock in the fact that he preached the first sermon. And 3,000 people get saved and inaugurates the church. Well, let's say it's, it's Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus goes on to say that Peter is blessed based on that confession. Why? Because he has made a correct confession of who Jesus is. And according to this confession, it's a miracle from the Father, not flesh and blood. In other words, the church then is built on the miracle work of God, the Father sending his Son and revealing to his people that Jesus is the true Christ the Son of the living God, who died on their behalf and ever lives for them. So if you're like me, you're thinking they both sound right, join the club. I'm in the the same boat. I think they both sound great. But let's focus on the promise. I will build my church. This promise is the biblical hope and reason we are willing and anxious and and excited to go to Long Island to preach the gospel, it is because we know that Jesus will build his church. And and, and as long as we preach the gospel, we are faithful, we are confident that he will build his church. Let's focus on each letter here. I will build my church. First off, I. I will build my church. Who says this? It's Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the one making the promise. And that means something. But it doesn't mean anything unless you really know who Jesus is. So it's, I'm going to explain to you a little bit, uh, just from Scripture, about who the Bible says that Jesus is. In Revelation 1, or in Revelation, one of the 24 elders says this about Jesus. Weep no more because the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and is worthy to open the scroll. Then the lion like lamb, the lamb like lion, Jesus, takes the scroll. And the elders and creatures around the throne sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain and by your blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus is the only one to open the scroll. Jesus is the only one to be able to even bring a church together. Jesus is the only one because he was slain on our behalf. We can be slain, but it makes no difference because we are not the Christ the Son of the living God. 
He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the one who died. He is the one who raised. He is the one who continues to intercede for us. He's alive now. That's why I'm confident wherever you go, wherever I go, and when I come back, that Jesus will build his church. Because he's alive and he continues to awaken us, to open our eyes. It's, it's not based on you. It's not based on me. It's not my church. It's Jesus' church. And it's his work that will further it. I will build the church. And he is already victorious. Now the next phrase, will build. I will build. The church is not necessarily a building. He's not talking about a building but it's a people with or without a building. The main point is this, is that the building has a builder, and it's Jesus. He grows the church. We plant, we water, but he gives the growth. His promise is that he will build the church, and he is faithful in all that he has said, and he will be faithful with this promise. I don't have to go. I don't have to uh, write fancy sermons. I don't have to make up something new. I don't have to wear skinny jeans. I don't have to slick my hair back and drink great coffee. I don't have to do all these culturally cool things that church planners need to do. I just need to preach the gospel. And Jesus says, I will build my church. That is the great promise. And that's your great promise here at Fisherville. Wherever you go, whether it's to work, home, when you, if you guys decide to ever leave and go, it's to preach the gospel. Be part of the church and Jesus will build his church. Next phrase, my. Again, Fisherville Baptist Church. It's not Brian's church. He leads us faithfully. But it's not Brian's church. It's not uh, the elders' church. They're overseeing it. But it is the, the church of Christ. It's the church of God. It's his church. But God has put these men here to oversee us. And it is a great privilege to be able to be under them. They are instituted by God, just as the church is instituted by God. And this gave me great confidence as well that it's not my church that I'm going to. Which is both relieving, but also scary because it's not my church. It is the Holy Christ's church. And I better pay careful attention to myself and to the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to care for the church of God. Church, last phrase. I will build my church. This is the great promise that has really led us it's not, it's not that Jesus will build a school. Jesus won't build uh, organizations. Uh, the North American Mission Board, the International Mission Board, these are great things, but Jesus promises, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So everything else has a possibility of tearing down, but not the church. Therefore, because of that, we can now stand firm in one spirit together. Striving for the one purpose to spread the gospel, to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth that everyone might have this biblical hope. Because people outside the church, people outside of Christ have no biblical hope. 
And there are so many people that have never heard the gospel. There are so many people. And it is our responsibility, our joy to send and to preach and to do whatever we can that people might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he will build his church. That's why we have people in Utah that is the, that was singularly the most dead place in America. But the gospel has gone forth because Jesus says, I will build my church. I will set the captives free. My love will not separate from any of the people whom I have called. This is our great joy as a church. You have been set free. Now you preach the gospel to the nations. Preach the gospel to your workers. This is the most freeing and liberating uh, scripture that I've heard. It's that he will build and he will keep. Nothing will prevail. That's point number one. A biblical hope for the church. Number two, a biblical understanding of the role of the church in this building of the church. So you've been given this promise that nothing will tear you down. Nothing will, will, will prevail against you, right? That, that literally goes along with, now why this fear and unbelief has not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for us? That's our hope. Now what do we do? We spread the gospel. And I'm, I'm going to show you, uh, biblically, like why I'm going to a church plant, uh, because I think biblically... This is how, in Acts, the, the church is spreading through, spreading through the world. So if you will turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now there were in the church of, at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So a couple things to notice here is that the church at Antioch is the sending church here in this context. This is where they were worshiping. They were just sitting there worshiping. And then in verse 2, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul. Now, what this looks like, the Holy Spirit speaking, I have no idea. I don't know if it was a, a loud voice or if it was through the church. People were um, saying that these are the people... When you send off, I don't know. But the point is, is that the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And we're going to see a little bit later on that the work was to preach the gospel in all these cities and make sure there are churches there so that they can worship together. They have a place to worship. Then also in verse 3, that this church is the one that sent them off. They fasted, prayed for them, laid their hands on them, and sent them off. This is a joyful thing that they get to do, to participate in 
the great work of spreading the gospel. And I am so thankful to be a part of that here as we go off, to be sent off by a church in which we have grown greatly in a church in which we have been affirmed and and confirmed in our calling to go. I think this is a very biblical thing. Set them apart for the work. The church has the authority here to send them. The church is the one who is sending them off. It wasn't outside of the church. This was inside the church. They were people within them worshiping. But now we're going to go through here. All right, so they go off. They, they go through Cyprus. And then in verse 12, uh, in chapter 13, it says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So they went and they preached there. And then they go to um, Pisidia. And if you go down to uh, verses 48 through 49, chapter 13, you'll see some more of the work that they were doing. Right before that, they preached a, a long message, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejo- rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So they go and they're preaching the gospel. They keep going to these new areas, preaching the gospel. And the people who are appointed to eternal life, right, the one that God has called to himself, they believed and had this great hope. The church was spreading. Verse 52, And the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. They were, they were following along in their call. Holy Spirit sent them off. They, went and they, they did the work to which they were called. And now they're filled with joy for obeying that call. In Acts 14, now they go to Iconium. Verse 1 says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks Believed. Again, people are believing. They're preaching the gospel. Verse 21 in chapter 14. It says, When they had preached the gospel to that city, this is at Lystra, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, which was the church at the beginning of 13, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And here it is, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they preach the gospel. A church is formed. Jesus said, I will build my church, and it happens through the gospel, through the teaching of his word. And he goes back and he appoints elders in each of these churches so that they have overseers for them to care for their souls. Right? What a beautiful thing is happening. Verse 26. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled, which was to preach the gospel and to each place They preached the gospel. They planted a church. They left them, the believers, with a place of safety and comfort. We want to leave people uh, with with an ability to worship. Without a community of the church, we are lost. And then in verse 27, it says, When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God has done with them 
and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So we saw that the church at Antioch was the one that planted other churches through the sending off of these two men, Saul and Barnabas. And they were commended for the work that which they fulfilled. So why is it so rare to see church plants live and thrive? Right? This seems so easy. Obviously, it's the New Testament. Right? It's, I mean, this is a, nobody has heard the gospel, and, and God is working miracles through uh, them. But why is it so rare to see church plants live and thrive? And I think it goes back to they're based on the powers of the flesh and blood rather than being focused on the gospel, being focused on Scripture, being focused on doing what the Bible says rather than focusing on being culturally relevant. They do not necessarily care about being culturally relevant. They were being stoned, and they're preaching the gospel and keep going. They were sent. They were not professionals. They were simply called, and they went, and they did. Now, I want to show you that church planters come from churches, right? Acts 13, 1 through 3, as if you remember, just real, real quick, we go back there, is that these two men, Barnabas and Saul, it, it doesn't say necessarily anything that they are special in any way, that they're the professionals. They're, they're not. They're just simply called by the Holy Spirit. Right? We don't want to go off and do a mighty work on just our own power and education and thought without the Holy Spirit. Right? That is something that, that is why uh, many churches and church plants die, is that possibly the planters and the pastors are simply not called. But they go. The, Jesus says, I will build my church. And I will build my church with the people whom I want to build my church with. It's not necessarily professional. It's the people that he calls. Set apart for me these two men for the work to which I've called them. They must do it. They're the ones who are called. But then as you see, as he goes through, he is with them throughout everything. He gets stoned and he goes through many persecutions. But God continues to strengthen and to be with him. But we also want churches who plant with church planters who care about theology, who care about Jesus. Right? So right after, in chapter 14, uh, at the end of 14, if you go into chapter 15, 1 through 3, there quickly becomes a dissension. There's a, an argument that arises. Right? If you follow with me in verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Verse 3, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Right? In other words, people were saying, you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. This is what they're teaching. This is what is spreading through the church. And immediately, Paul and Barnabas, they debate with them. Not because they like to debate, but because the glory of Christ is on the line within the church. 
Some say that Jesus is the prophet. Some say he's Elijah. But who do you say that I am? Right here they're saying that, that, that you're great, but we also need to be circumcised in order to be saved. I know Jesus died on the cross, but we need to be circumcised in accordance of Moses. The real issue is what are we building the church upon? Is it upon works or is it upon the work of Jesus Christ? Again, the church does not go forth through the true church and not go through, forth through teaching unless you are circumcised or, or some false teaching. The, the, church does not, the true church does not go forth that way. The churches live and breathe and eat on the gospel. The churches live on the word of God. You and I need the gospel. If there is no gospel, there is no life. So the church planter, who is a pastor, which is actually a church, also needs to be rooted in the deep, deep love of Jesus Christ who bought them. Otherwise, the gates of Hades will prevail against it. If the sending church is not trusting in that Christ, right, it would be trusting in the one who holds the world together to also hold the church together, it will fail if it does not trust in him. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 Paul goes through a whole bunch of stuff that's going on at the Corinthian church. But he says this, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, nothing is greater importance than this, that that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day, or he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the bedrock of our church. This is the bedrock of the church among the world. And this is the, the, the bedrock amongst we must uh, send people. If we have people in here who believe this and who are called by the Holy Spirit, you must go and you must preach the gospel wherever it is that you're called. If you are not called, you need to stay here and you need to preach this gospel to wherever it is that you are called. Because this is what is of first importance. This is what believers need. You and I need the gospel. Not once, not twice, but every day, every minute of every day, he said, I would remind you, brothers, of this. That Christ died for our sins. That is what you, in what you stand. We, we, we sometimes rely simply, and it's easy for me to do this, on, on a, a seminary degree. That, that's what I think I need in order to be a church pastor. But what I need is I need to be called. I need to be rooted and grounded in this deep love. The seminary is great, but it does not call you. The church is the one who sends and calls and trains and equips. 
So our bedrock, as we, as we wrap it up, is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he has joyfully gone to the cross to die for our sins. And, and that's, that's what many of you, uh, you've believed a long time ago. Right? We need to continue to believe that, in which you stand, in which you are being saved. Hold fast. He has called us to trust in him for our salvation, but also for the building of the church. Let us take this privilege of, of a church to continue your calling to, to raise up people to go to the nations and to be part of churches, to plant churches, to, to go, go to, uh, uh, to, to international missions, to wherever it is that people are called. Continue to call and to equip and to train these people because people need the gospel. And it spreads through your through the local church. It spreads through you. We, the God uses the church. And we have this amazing privilege to go. Let's make it our aim, like Paul, to please him in all that we do and all that we say, which begins here, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is our cornerstone. That's what the Bible says. And that is our hope. So I might be leaving to go somewhere else. But I'm not leaving forever. We are one body. We are one church. And I need you just as much as you need me. We need each other. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I, just, I thank you so much, God, for this glorious and amazing truth that you will build your church and that you will hold and keep your church, that you have so deeply loved us that you gave us your Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God, I pray that we would hold fast, that we'd stand firm in that truth. I pray that as as Fisherville Baptist continues on, that day by day that they would continue to trust in the blood of Jesus. I pray that you would give them more faith, more love, more hope in Jesus Christ than they had had yesterday. I pray that you continue to mold them into the beautiful church that you've created them to be. I thank you so much for this family, for the love and the support. God, I pray that you be with them. I pray that you be with us as we, as we leave. Lord, we thank you so much. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.